Well, at last, I got to see a, a fraction of uh, Crystal's torso. There you go. Um, I, uh, yeah, I missed everything you said. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Never Stay Dead. This is Damien, and I'm here with my old buddy, Matt, the old buddy. The old buddy. And we're really going to be talking about being old buddies this time. The, the theme of this show is the past 10 years in comics, the decade that was, because it is New Year's Eve as we record, um, the daytime of New Year's Eve, because we have wild parties to go to in the evening. Yes. So we want to talk about the past decade in comics. And so, Matt, I was wondering, what were you doing 10 years ago in 2010? Any memories? I mean, 10 years ago, God, it, it feels so long ago. I was just out of college. Um, and as far as comic collecting goes, it was really starting to ramp up for me. I mean, I had my first real job. Um, I had a place and I had, you know somewhere where I could get a reliable pull. And so I was starting to really dig in. And this was around the time I think I was starting to discover DC more. Uh-huh. I mean, I, I poked around, but this was around the time I really dug in. Because right at the start of here is pretty much when the New 52 uh, jumped in. And right. my the New DC 52 was 2011. Was. But yeah, so that very much. Oh, yeah, I was counting 2011 up. Yeah, I was counting 2010 to 2019 as the decade. Well, oh, okay. Never mind. Well, so you, yeah. but you had graduated college and were able to spend more money on comics right around that time. Yeah. And ironically, I was just coming out of the kind of hardest period of parenthood. Uh, my daughter was not quite two yet. And I had given away most of my best comics that I had because I, over the years, sloughed off comics a lot. But I'd given away all these great comics, like a complete run of Taboo and Barry Smith Storyteller and stuff like that, to one of our um, babysitters who was an artist. <laughs> and I thought, well, I'm never, I'm never going to have time in my life to read comics and collect them again. I'm giving them away to you. And a few months later, I got one of the first iPads. And one of the first things I did on it was start reading comic books on it. There you I go. I dove into the Dark Horse app and Comixology. And then like you, when, when uh, the New 52 came around, I got real excited by that. And at first, I was buying a lot of New 52 digitally. And then it was like, wait, what am I doing? And I started buying them physically. And YouTube yeah. played a, a, a big role at that point, too. I was listening to YouTube reviewers who were all excited about the beginning of the New 52, and that kind of ramped me up in my excitement over comics. Oh, yeah, definitely. And it's funny, I mean, how YouTube's changes throughout the decade have affected my comic buying throughout the decade, just through access and uh, talking to different people or not talking to different people right. because of how... Depending on the and not, part of you the decade you're in <laughs> right and i mean not just youtube as a larger entity but like comic book youtube and like where things were at and the rise and fall of comic skate and all that right yeah matt and i met because of youtube he has had a channel for about nine years i've had mine for about seven and three quarters <laughs> i thought you'd been right. around a lot longer than me 
Um, I thought you'd been around I mean, like 12 years or something. No. Well, but anyway, that's yeah. not important. So YouTube is a big defining factor in a sense for our decade of comic books because we found a lot of fellow fans. You already had a group in Colorado or whatever city you were living in, in Colorado. Well, to you, I mean, well... Working on creating comics and meeting all those people you mentioned in one of our previous podcasts. Yeah, but um, for me, the YouTube came first. Oh, really? YouTube. Oh, you were on I'm YouTube so before that, that, all that creative stuff. or that Right, so I was doing my YouTube channel, and uh, that kind of gave me some gumption and maybe enough throw, I guess, to kind of push more. And so is because I was looking to do more that I kind of fell into the creative bit and then fell into the um, con bit. And I was just quickly looking at some of my older videos to try to get a placement of like, you know, what videos I was making where I was at in roughly given year. And, you know, where I'm starting nine years ago, like it moved pretty quickly from like my parents' house to one place, then to another place I was living. Um, but also seeing like when I was at C2E2 and knowing that I was there to like kind of scope it out to get some ideas for Denver Comic Con or uh, um, talk to other various artists which are on there. So your involvement in the volunteering with the Denver Comic Con was during that this decade also. Right. Like it all happened in this decade. Yeah. It was all post you know, school. And so... That all kind of factors in, but it's also kind of crazy to kind of see, you know, like, just by kind of the titles or what comics I'm flashing, you know, what I was reading at the time mm -hmm. and kind of seeing it. With the exception of, oh my god, the biggest mistake I made on my channel, I think, was when the new 52 is launching, for three months, I was trying to make a video every week going through every one of the comics. Oh, wow. And... By the last month, I was just an angry, sad person <laughs> pushing myself through the goal I had set myself, despite everything. Right, because that was literally 52 comics to read and review in a month. Yeah, and I mean, looking back on the new 52, I think I'm kinder to it, but if you, if you took off the uh, bottom 10% of the new 52, which DC did in pretty short order... Right. Uh, yeah, it looks a lot better pretty quickly. Right, and if you look at the top 10 or 15% of the new 52, it was it was pretty good. It was pretty good, though. The one thing that still bugs me about the launch of the new 52, and I think it was uh, Channel Comic to Comic that pointed out to me first, was that all the Bat books was someone trying to, like, essentially assassinate the um, alternate ego of whatever the main character was of that book. <laughs> it was all of them. It was just, at, once I saw it, I was like, oh, man, that's... Yeah. Huh. Well, <laughs> mixed up. well, so both of us, I think, became more Wednesday warriors in this decade. And one of the things that shaped the decade in terms of the big two comic book companies was reboots, relaunches, new number ones all the time. Uh, so the, the new 52 being the really big one. And then, then DC kind of semi-rebooted with DCU. And then they completely rebooted with Rebirth. And mm -hmm. Marvel had a bunch of different things that they tagged with names that are so generic I can't remember anymore. Like, what was it? Not Marvel Again or something like that. Marvel Now, Marvel, whatever. Yeah. There were like I, well, two I mean, Marvel Nows, I think. 
all these kind of wide line like relaunches whether they were soft or hard or whatever was happening and then there was the creative push with image and then some of the dark horse stuff you're talking about right. and then some other smaller publishers well, I that think, have cropped up i think dark horse's day was really in the past and so well i at the dark beginning horse... of the decade when i was looking for indie books i i got that dark horse app and i got lots of stuff and it was pretty good there was because uh, it was right before the image revolution and dark yeah. horse yeah had access there was the umbrella club was one of the early 2000 mm-hmm. or i mean early 2010 2011 but then it soon got eclipsed by Dark Horse, which was ramping up because of The Walking Dead, basically. And then, in my mind, exploded because of Saga. And I would list Saga is the first thing that came to my mind when I was thinking of what was the best of the decade. And you may not <laughs> okay. agree. I liked Saga a lot. I don't know if it was my personal favorite. It's hard to pinpoint a personal favorite. But it's definitely one of the best and most consistent comics throughout my decade of reading comics. Well, it was the most consistently recommended comic by pretty much anyone who is trying to get anyone to read more comics. There's that, too. And it was one of the the big bestsellers in trades and um, Uh hardbacks and such. Definitely a standout, like, through the decade. It was funny going through some lists to try to jog my memory of what was happening in what year. And pretty much every year on this decade after, I think it's 2012 Saga launches? I'm not sure if it's 12 or late 11. Or 13. Oh, yeah. But after that point, every year, somewhere on the list, people are like, you gotta read Saga. Right. And And Saga drew in a lot of people who, um, you know, weren't the traditional old-school comic book readers who grew up with superheroes. But around issue 30 or something, there is a bit of a drop-off where some people were less infatuated, felt like it slowed down, whatever. Whatever I, detractors I remember there becoming were. less infatuated with Saga and then thinking it picked back up again. Um, there's a danger in any long-running series of not loving it forever. Even if it retains its consistency, you get kind of been there done that at some point well yeah i mean i kind of saw it as there's this explosion of creativity there's all these crazy sci-fi and fantastical ideas colliding and then the story in order to continue kind of need to slow down and kind of give some gravitas to the characters and frankly start allowing some of the characters to meet because it was funny how much got introduced and how little interaction there was between a lot of stuff throughout the first handful of issues which it worked. I'm not saying that's a problem, but eventually it had to kind of play with the tools it, it brought and forward. once they brought them together, that may have slowed things down. And, and they also, yeah. Saga, in my memory of the maybe first 20 or 30 issues, relied heavily on big shocking moments like the giant testicles or some other kind of bizarre sex scene or what have you. And after a while, you they couldn't depend on that as sort of a draw. Yeah, you can only do so much shock value before it's not shocking anymore. <laughs> and before people say, okay, I'm every issue I'm expecting something shocking to happen in Saga. And then... It's kind of funny to me because I remember some of that stuff you're talking about. But if you remember that um, pregnant, the, the drawing of, I'm spacing on her name right now. Alana, uh, was it? Yeah, Alana, pregnant. I think it was the one of the first or was it the first issue the first issue has a shocking birth scene well there was that but it was literally the cover of her just being pregnant got it blocked off the uh apple store for a while and some of that like there's controversy around this book for some of it for stuff that they also had a very graphic scene at a bordello 
um, which I think got them kicked off of Comixology another time. Yeah, and it's funny because I'm reading this and, you know, some shock and awe, but I'm like, okay, comics, you know, I, I've read some, you know, underground 80 stuff. So to me, I'm like, okay, they're, right. they're pulling in some stuff. And then it gets banned from th- this new age of digital comics. And uh, I think that's part of the reason it was such a standout book in our memories. To me, as kind of an old guy, Saga kind of represented the bringing in of a lot of the underground values into what is essentially mainstream comics. Seeing penises and frontal birth scenes and testicles and all of that in a comic that is essentially available everywhere at all kinds of stores and not behind a a special gate or anything like that. Yeah. The kind of what was once viewed as offensive stuff is now part uh, a regular part of comics in a lot of cases. Yeah, no, definitely. And I mean, (laughs) normally you'd have to go to like humanoids or something to see that kind of stuff. So yeah, this was kind of a shifting of the guard. So anyway, yeah, yeah, that's a good point. The European comics already were pretty... Saga's foreign, it's Canadian, right? <laughs> is Brian K. Vaughan Canadian? Is he? I don't even know. I just felt like it was Canadian for whatever reason. Maybe I I'm think just the talking about my uh, orifice. Um, suddenly, Fiona Staples is Canadian, I believe. Mm-hmm. But I don't think Brian K. Vaughan is. Anyway, that's not important. But um, yeah, so it seemed, looking at the, just generalizing, it was a decade of... Reboot, 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 and then the huge image explosion taking over the creator-owned space. And now maybe that's fading towards the end of the decade for image. Yeah, I wonder how... So there's definitely been some pushback against it, as there naturally is going to be at some point. But I mean, through most of this decade, image really carved out and expanded the comics market it's it's funny because so often when we talk about comics numbers we look at issue sales based on pre-orders that you know the comic shops shops to go to ordering they might be able to sell right which is something but when you're looking at the larger market you know what is amazon selling what is you know whatever grocery stores comes up on book scan and Barnes and Noble and all of that stuff. Yeah, and people buying books from yeah general places like that's where you're really going to hit so much more of the market. But more importantly, you're going to hit people who aren't as infatuated with superheroes. And whereas there are some people who love comics for comics sake, whether it be superheroes or not, you can't really walk into a comic book store and not have some love of superheroes i don't think i know some people go and they you know pick and choose their books and they get you know a few books here and there maybe every few weeks or something and they do that but that i i can't imagine not caring about superheroes and going to the comic store if if you don't care about superheroes and go to the comic book store you're pretty overwhelmed because there's just superheroes on all sides Yeah, you have to like laser focus in on what you want. You almost have to hunt peck for anything that would be outside of that that may or may not catch your interest. Because then at that point, you know, like there's some horror books. And I think that's one thing that Image did is now there's consistently, you know, a few horror books and a few crime books. And they're not all Image. Horror and sci-fi were kind of their three main genres, I would say. And then some attempts at fantasy, a high fantasy kind of stories. Not many. Yeah, I, I... I sought some out just to try to get mm-hmm. to a different genre, try some different things. But even trying to push into it, there are few that are 
Several several started and then stopped before their story was anywhere near done because these fantasy stories require really long, epic stories. But yet one of the things that I see that's... Well, I see two things is that some of the writers that left the mainstream and said, okay, I'm just doing image creator own now, some of them are coming back to do some... uh, Marvel and DC Comics, Jonathan Hickman at the very, this very last year of the decade made a big comeback to Marvel after, you know, we heard him in person and I heard him on many podcast interviews saying, you know, I make so much more money from my independent comics. Right. And Matt Fraction and Sally, Kelly Sue DeConnick are now both doing a, uh, a DC comic apiece. Although I kind of feel like they may be doing those for fun because they have their big Hollywood production company now. Maybe I I couldn't speak to, you know, their motivations of what they're doing there. But there was I think there was some recognition from the big two where they were going to have to pay some of these at least big name creators some money. But also throughout the decade, we've heard a lot of accusations of um, missed accreditation, um, increased bits of like how much of each comic has to go effectively to the estates of uh the original creators or whatnot and how that affects the bottom line oh you mean like marvel made their deals with the the creators of superman's families and of jack kirby's family and that kind of thing you mean dc yeah um sorry dc with the superman and marvel with the jack kirby family yeah i don't want to call you fake comic man (laughs) but come on i'm totally fake I actually am not bald. I shave my head and I wear glasses and I put this little beard on to try to look more like a geek, but it's not really. Me. There you go. I, uh, I, I mean, just, I think the, indi- it, it, what am I trying to get to? I'm trying to get to the idea that I feel like the industry and the marketing of this stuff became much more prominent to how people accept and look at things in the comic sphere. Whereas like, what kind of marketing do you mean? Well, I mean, just people accepting the marketing of it all. Like, just the other day, I saw Dan Slott tweeting about how there's these two old Amazing Spider-Man covers where on one issue, it was like, who's the big bad? And all these, like, question marks all over the cover. And then the next one, it's this big Green Goblin um, cover because it was revealed in the last page of the last comic. You can't do that anymore because comics have to be advertised three months in advance and with all the variant covers and whatnot, they can't hold a surprise like that anymore. Um, well, that's true. The The comics back before the internet, you much more often were surprised about what was going to happen next. Well, and so people will talk about like the advertising or perception of something of like Secret Empire or, um, I don't know, Doomsday Clock. But there's all this conversation that happens before the first issue lands and certainly before the piece has finished. And not right. say, I mean, there's right. always conversational something's going yeah. on. But I mean, there's so much like precognition talk versus yes. kind of enjoying and maybe diving more into an authorial intent kind of thing which is where i feel more of the comics discourse expectations are very different now people go in with a lot of expectations and a lot of prejudgment and sometimes on the political side you know we've seen a preview of the first issue so we assume that x and y is sexist or racist or is sjw or is what have you without Mm -hmm. reading the whole story (laughs) Right, and I really feel like that came in this decade. Don't get me wrong, in the last decade, some of the previews and stuff happened, but you could be pretty neutral and not worry about it because 
Mostly because, I mean, if you cared about Spider-Man, there was probably, I mean, still five books, but I mean, it was five regular books, maybe the occasional miniseries would crop up and you'd buy it. But now there's like so many miniseries, one shots, variant covers and all that. In order to order what you want, you have to kind of... You have to drill down and look at them all in some form of preview to decide. Or have a shop that is so great that carries everything in great stock and you can flip through the page. I mean, in the old days, you just had to flip through it on the rack and decide uh, in the spot on the spot whether to get it or not. Right. And I feel like increased prices have really put a crunch on that as well. I mean, we're looking at $4 a book at the beginning of the decade. We were at, you know, DC is drawing the line at two ninety nine. Right. At the beginning of the decade, we were looking at a mostly three, $3 books with a few $4 books. And now we're looking mm-hmm. at a real mix of 4 and $5 books with some 6 and $7 books popping up and all other kinds of formats. And we're dealing with the fact that we can, we can, even if we don't do anything illegal with digital, we can, you know, get most Marvel and DC stuff six months late for a nominal amount of money digitally. And I can, you know, get a lot of stuff for free from my library digitally and all kinds of things where you have a, a weird, different economic choice to make than you did a decade before. Well, and all those digital things are only responses to the level of piracy that they were seeing because there's this untapped market and they decided to finally tap it in the loosest, laziest way possible, <laughs> slowly getting to where they are. Only at the end of the decade now does it feel like the paid digital services pretty much cover a lot. You know, when Marvel Unlimited first came out, you still would have had to bootleg most Marvel stuff to get what you wanted, I suppose. And in my case, I still would have to um, Uh, because I look for the weird stuff. But I own enough of it now, so it's not a big deal. I'm feeling like in the next decade, that's going to be kind of a reckoning where they're really going to have to address it. And that price point matching the the physical price point with the digital price point might have to slide. Yeah, I mean, for me personally, I became motivated to buy physical because the digital was full price and physical I get at a 25% off discount. Or for, uh, you know, when I order books from in-stock trades for a 42% discount. I've kind of, I, I got a lot more digital at the beginning of the decade, partially because I was excited by it. I just got my iPad and most comics became dropped down to one ninety nine after a month on Comixology and they don't do that mm-hmm. anymore. Uh, most of the digital comics I got were through uh, Humble Bundle and they're, you know, you pay oh. $20, but you get like a pile of whatever. Yeah, I got a few Humble Bundles and then didn't end up reading them because it was too much at once. Yeah, so. But just picking up my brand new comics, it actually, for now, it makes sense doing it physically. But if, you know, if in the future I could get the new comics for 99 cents digitally and then just buy, rebuy the ones I really liked in hardback later, to me, that would be a a fine solution. It wouldn't be very good for the comic book store, though. Well, and that's what I'm wondering. I mean, we've seen so many comic book stores close, um, but comic sales have gone up, which is indicating something (laughs) but a lot of the going up has been in trades and and if you break it down a lot of it has been in um young adult comics that we never even see in comic book stores right 
I saw a list of the best-selling graphic novels of the decade, and most of them were Dogman, um, which probably most of our listeners don't even know who Dogman is by Dav Pilkey, the guy who... Uh, Super Underwear Man or something. Captain Underpants. Oh. The creator of Captain Underpants. Yeah. So graphic novel with this character, Dogman, that is another character by... And the, and then there's the Rainia Teglemeyer books, which are also on the best sellers of the decade. Well, and how much sales are those getting? Because they're at like school book fairs or at their monthly, um, you know... Uh, that's part of it. That's part. part that's a big part of it. But also, you know, now that Dogman book, they publish, like they do print runs of 2 million when it first comes out of each volume. So it's just kind of a, a crazy phenomenon. Yeah, no. Well, I mean, that's part of what I'm saying is like the hobby as far as like the Wednesday Warrior kind of like superhero laden thing that we know it as is diminishing. That doesn't mean comics are going away. It just means this weird niche that requires so much upkeep that are superheroes I, going away even though they're huge in other media are I they going away from comics i can't imagine they go away but i think the monthly issue might i mean during this decade uh, to the extent a time sometimes i've watched the sales figures other times i haven't but my general sense is the uh the sales of comics have drifted down and drifted down and drifted down and um there'd be little jumps up when dc does reboots new 52 for the first few months and then rebirth for the few first few months overall the comics are selling better at the end of the decade than they were at the beginning right um i think we can say more um, people are reading comics than ever before well not than i i think especially across the spectrum of ages and if you count all those kids' graphic novels, all the indie graphic novels that are selling, yeah. all the the manga has apparently made a big, strong comeback oh. towards the end of this decade. Well, I mean, I don't know if it ever really went away. I kind of wonder if that was a counting issue. There was a huge manga boom sometime in the 2000s, and then it mm -hmm. actually did fall back. It did. Well, it fell back from, like, un Like, this is comparing, like, X-Men 1 to... Right, like, did it drop down from this weird, unprecedented boom where it was hot and trendy? Yeah, but then as as the market settled into what it would be long term, like, it, I mean, it's still, like, when you look at a lot of the monthly graphic novel sales, like, a lot of them are manga volumes, right. and th those are still really big, and the big, whatever the big hot manga thing is, which I have mostly dropped off from. I think My Hero Academia is pretty big in One Punch Man right now. What I hear but from like, publishers weekly is there's a noticeable, been a noticeable uptick in the last few years in manga sales. So they yeah. used to be considered that they'd gone soft, and now they're hot again. So when you add all those things up, and and we st another you know big stream of sales for superheroes is just the reprints of the old stuff. I mean, I I buy a lot of omnibuses and stuff that are reprinting stuff from the '60s and '70s. And the, on YouTube, there's some very popular channels that are only about omnibuses and you know hardback collections. And I mean. It, it, not thank you for the ones you got me, but I find uh, omnibuses. You find them too big. Well, they're just hard to like, like the way I read. I don't like put it down on a table or a pedestal and you know absorb. You know, I'm reading it kind of crunched over, curled in bed, or sitting down. Yeah, I'm planning and, to uh, put pedestals all over my house so I can read comics wherever I go. 
because um, yeah. now I've been getting those. I showed you, I think, in a picture those ginormous collections that Marvel's starting to do of some of their superstars like Ditko and Kirby mm -hmm. and Jim Lee. <laughs> I thought that was interesting. They've already jumped on it for Jim Lee that are larger than the original art <laughs> in many cases. Yeah. And those are just crazy big. And I love them. I assume they're selling well because they've, you know, they've they started just this year, I think, in early 2019. And now they've already had about six of them out. But that's one of the joys of digital. You know, if you get a big enough screen, anything yes, can be omnibus-sized. So I, there's so much kind of... There's a lot of churn in terms of format and where the market's going, but it does seem very healthy in terms well, yeah, of and I think... if you love comics. Yeah, and I think if you look at a decade, you're going to kind of see a movement. Like I was saying, like social media and how we think about it has kind of changed how we digest comics this decade. Before that, it was just digital at all. And the fact that previews didn't have to be in a book and also some of the twists and turns with like Ultimate and some of the reactions with that and kind of the decade of Bendis, frankly. Right. Um, which Bendis through this decade... Wow, I think he had a massive downturn of popularity with some of his late stuff at Marvel, despite some highlights. And uh, then that twist over to DC, like that was some of the biggest comic news of the decade. And I, I know there's some people who, you know, like some of the stuff he's doing at DC, but he just has not hit it there right. in the same way. Given the high expectations, it could be viewed as kind of a belly flop. <laughs> But he's not like he's an unsuccessful writer at DC. He's just not, you know, a radical changer of the game <laughs> like he maybe once was in the 2000s. Well, but if you think about what really brought him up at Marvel, it was doing kind of a he had the Avengers shift over, which was going to be kind of big, I think, no matter what, probably. Mm -hmm. um, and then Ultimate Spider-Man and then stuff like Alias and Daredevil that brought him up like... It's kind of there's those, funny to but think he about also now, but... kind of I think he was deep into all the events and was kind of a an architect and a mastermind of events and bigness. You know, his whole approach to the Avengers was just to put everyone in the Marvel universe into the Avengers, <laughs> and right. that was so that was one of his things. And I think events have slowly taken more and more a backseat to what generates excitement in comics. I, they still keep churning them out. Marvel just started another one this Unless week. Unless it's an event like we're rebooting the X-Men with Jonathan Hickman, but that wasn't really an event in the oh, sense no. of, you know, well, I War mean, of the Realms or Siege or what have you. Well, I mean, we just had, um, yeah, War of the Realms, and then um, they're doing Incoming, and there's been other events like Absolute Carnage or whatever running. I don't know. I, d they keep I don't doing feel like them, but down. it doesn't feel like doesn't feel yeah, like no. they're drivers of the market in the way they once were they help a little it seems like i mean they do push some sales but yeah it's not the same and god i wish they'd stop <laughs> <laughs> and i don't know you know if the the event leviathan and year of the villain that bendis has done over at dc has helped them very much at all it's hard for me to tell but it certainly kept me away from a bunch of comics yeah, I, I read something about that. And the, prob the problem that uh, someone pointed out for someone who was invested in it was that, you know, Event Leviathan and then You're the Villain were kind of like happening, but they were kind of the same thing, but intermerged. And it was just kind of confusing if you, until you read it. And then 
and then even then confusing and then also like right, seems a very vague there's all these questions about like the three jokers and all this that just have kind of languished and then you have doomsday clock which was supposed <laughs> to be this big deal that intersected over these other things and then took forever but then these events have like alternate conclusions of where the universe is going and what's happening with certain characters and so if you're reading all of it it just feels like a hot mess well especially doomsday seems like one of the big flubs of the end of the end of the decade for dc because it should have come way earlier because it's supposed to tie into the the whole rebirth thing and everyone's pretty much forgotten about rebirth now and it just i haven't read doomsday to the end but it was supposed to explain rebirth and and sort of be a capstone to that whole thing and kind of explain what happened with old DC versus new 52, where right. Rebirth was continuing from there. Um, right. Explain how they were bringing everything together. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I yeah, plan to man. eventually read it just to figure out what they were hoping to do. <laughs> I, Yeah, I've read Doomsday Clock and it just doesn't. It's It makes me angry. Well, <laughs> when you come into comics in 2010... Je at DC, Jeff Johns and Grant Morris Morrison are the superstars and shapers of the DC universe, and they're pretty much uh, empty empty vessels by the end of the decade. Well, didn't they basically just leave by the end of it? Or well, Jeff Johns is there occasionally trying to stir the like he created Rebirth, and then he was supposed to shape it with the Doomsday Clock, and so by kind of not i don't know exactly yeah. what went wrong but and even since new 52 neither of those guys both of them had comics at the beginning of new 52 but it didn't last long well i can tell you what happened with jeff johns he got overbooked he's like a creative director and all this other stuff which is always going to take precedent over whatever even if it's a major comic yeah i, I mean money wise yeah well and morrison i think also was off writing scripts in hollywood i don't know if any of them ever got produced but anything he's done, you know, starting with uh, New 52's Batman Incorporated and a few other things he's done at DC, the ac his action comics kind of fizzled. And then his uh, recent comeback to Green Lantern has not really caused a big buzz or been a major thing. So it's just sort of interesting to see how these they're not gone. Jeff Johns and Grant Morrison are still around. Obviously, Bendis is still around in a big way, but... Things do shift a lot over a decade. They do. And to kind of get to more to that, um, for me to like remember the decade, I had to kind of look at some major franchises and mm -hmm. see where they were throughout the decade. DC was a lot easier to signpost because with the new 52, it was easy to remember like, okay, this is where Batman was at throughout it because there's the whole, you know, Scott Snyder, Scott Greg Snyder Capullo Batman, run yeah. that was five, six years. Yeah, I think it was um, about five years. I think they went 52 yeah. issues. Yeah, they went 52 issues with the new 52, then it was Rebirth. <laughs> um, but I mean, and then in there, there was the two year-long Batman events and all that. And God, I bought so much Batman. I care so little about most of it. Um, but in there, like uh, Batman and Robin and uh, Robin's death, Requiem, remember all yeah. that? Like, that, those are kind of the big highlights. That and the Capullo, like, Snyder and Capullo big issues, which were basically in the first two years of their run. 
was the strong stuff. Then it the Court of the Owl stuff and the the first Joker story they did. I think those were really strong and were kind of the possibly the standout Batmans of the decade. There was other stuff like uh, Tomasi's Batman and Robin. I'm trying to think if there's and there's been other bits and pieces of good Batman around. Yeah, and I mean, there's like some good issues and stuff, but I mean, as far as what stands out, and what's funny too is like Court of the Owls was recognized as one of the best Batman stories. Like within two years, they were putting it up with like uh, Dark Knight. Even Returns before it was finished, they were making a big deal. Out of it. Well, yeah, I, I meant like I give the year after to see where they're at with it because they always kind of zero year is going to be the biggest thing ever batman number one of that snyder capullo run was going for a lot of money on ebay i should look and see what it goes for now but while it was still running you know people yeah were spending 50 or 100 dollars on it my favorite and one of my favorites of the decade from new 52 was the wonder woman run mm-hmm. which i know we've talked about before by um brian azarello and cliff chang and a few other artists and that still, you know, I haven't gone back to reread it yet. I bought the omnibus, but it still stands in my memory, looking back on it, that I I enjoyed every issue and I enjoyed it when it hit the end. Like, I really liked Snyder's uh, early Court of the Owls and all that. But I remember the finale of Court of the Owls kind of fell flat. But the finale mm-hmm. of Wonder Woman fulfilled the promise of the entire series. And that is very unusual. And so for me personally, that stands as one of the tops of the decades. I, it's definitely a top. And I, for me, that was a whole personal arc. Because when it first started, I was like, what are they doing with Wonder Woman? I was on board with um, some Simone other stuff. or something. Well, I did like the Gail Simone run. That was more of what I was, you know, expected Wonder Woman to be in a way. But I also, throughout this, like, I didn't really read Wonder Woman as of 2010 and all my wonder woman reading has happened within the decade Go, now going I understand. backwards afterwards yeah well yeah but i mean also like um when this new 52 started i wasn't on board and then um i remember phil jimenez had come to one of the um comic festivals uh i attended and he was asked about this new run and he just like he black marked it which because he's a wonder woman purist he is, um, but he's pretty open to most people, and he's a pretty big fan of most people on Wonder Woman. And he was saying this is going to be remembered as kind of the time they depowered Wonder Woman, which is, to most Wonder Woman fans, kind of a, a, a black point. Right. Um, which I think is unfair and, about at that period when they did it. I Anyway, this is a total aside. Yeah. I think they were doing their best to try to make Wonder Woman interesting to the youth market of its day. Well, and what they did was they were willing to lean on the warrior side of Wonder Woman, but when push came to shove and you got to the end of that arc, you saw more of that more hopeful Wonder Woman come out, but it was only in kind of retrospect you realized how dark they were trying to like portray the situation she was in mm-hmm. at the time. It's like, because, I don't know, it felt like a new angle and it was the new 52 so everything was fresh so that people are kind of taking it as just status quo i think but when you look at it it was like the horrors of olympus made manifest on earth in a way we really hadn't seen in a wonder woman comic before and it really played on that mythological angle in a way that just made the arc work and wonder woman just has not been as good since yeah well for me the two best run wonder woman runs are the george perez run and mm-hmm. then this run with um, 
um, Azarello. And I, I think agree. Both of those delve into her mythological side in completely different ways. But mm-hmm. and I think that 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 to me is what excites me about Wonder Woman. Other people are well, excited by other things about Wonder Woman, I guess. The other interesting thing is if you take that Perez run and that Azarello run, first of all, probably the best thing both of those creators have ever done and including Cliff Chang because he was more consistent and uh-huh. Perez was actually doing the whole thing. Um, those are like heights for them. Also, those, as as far as Wonder Woman being a superhero comic, those read and feel very different than pretty much most superhero comics because yes. they're not really issues. They're just installments in yeah. an epic saga, which makes right. sense. But then when most creators come to wonder woman they try to do you know mythic superman woman yeah and it just it's not the same uh so it's only a part of wonder woman because it really wasn't wonder woman as a superhero but it was a really great story and Mm. to me it combined some of the best elements of wonder woman with some of the best elements of a good vertigo story um from the Mm -hmm. best era of vertigo well, and in reading that Wonder Woman, I thought I was going to be a really big Azarello fan. And I started diving into some of his back catalog and yeah. not so much. I had a similar experience. <laughs> yeah. He's not a bad writer, but nothing else I've tried yet. I haven't found anything else yet that lives up to that. I mean, Hunter Bolts has some moments, but it's a bit much. Um, I would absolutely recommend to everyone, do not read or find his Luke Cage run. It is <laughs> abysmal. But that um, has Richard Corbin on it, so I need to find it. Oh, man. <laughs> um, no, you don't. <laughs> so so for me so far, the top of my list was Saga and Wonder Woman. Is there anything near the top of your list of things for the decade? Yeah. Um, for me, unquestionably unshocking to no one the biggest well but the i think it's important because it, it is. just hit issue 100 at the end of the decade right. which is about a decade's worth of comics yeah, it shapes the decade i think for it your tips a little over um but it was also a revival for this and actually plays to something else that we haven't talked about on um, kind of outside the big two was ninja turtles um right which was rebooted in a sense with who was it? Kevin Eastman was involved, and then what was the other main writer? Waltz, Tom Waltz, um, who was he'd done some work, but I mean, like this is where he's made his bones. What year did um, that come out? Like 2012, also oh around my, the same time as Saga. I am going to look it up, and it's really um, more than a hundred comics because they did, always did all these side runs, which you also enjoyed a lot. Yeah, so I mean, there's the main run of 100 issues, but there are a bunch of miniseries, and there's, like, there's one, there's two bits with, like, each turtle getting their own issue, called micro-series, and then same with the villains, and then they had all these miniseries. There's one miniseries that's absolutely essential, which was The Secret of the Foot Clan, that is probably more referenced than most regular issues of the uh, run. And there's some other stuff. I have it all. So for anyone interested who hasn't read it, and I haven't read most of it, there's this huge now body that you can read and have a huge satisfying story. So August 2011. Wow. um, So they really do cover just about the entire decade. Yeah. And so it just hit a big milestone where Tom Waltz has, we'll see, 
Um, Tom Waltz has officially left at least the main title. He's supposed to be coming back for some big uh, mini series in a few months. So, eh. so it really and is Sophie a new, Campbell a will be new decade for the Turtles. You'll have to see whether this decade turns out as well as the last one. But if you're a big Ninja Turtles nerd like I am, of course you're going to give it a try. But well, but so this run is fascinating mm-hmm. because this is the longest run of Ninja Turtles ever unquestionably and what the one that it usurped was tales of the ninja turtles volume two which was a book that like if you're a casual ninja turtles fan you probably don't even know exists but it went on for 90 some issues and but i have to say before this i thought ninja turtles had just become this thing that you know, they license out to whoever wants to do some quickie thing to it. And then the IDW series came along and it seemed like they were treating it like it maybe originally was meant to be treated as a a serious ongoing series. But I might be wrong about that since I didn't read them. You're not, you're not wrong though. The licensing of Ninja Turtles is like this weird, fascinating thing. I just found out Kevin Eastman doesn't actually own uh, the Turtles IP at all anymore. He sold it off. Well, so Peter Laird still retains his, oh. um, or the last I heard he did, maybe he sold it off somewhere afterwards. Um, but it was during... So Laird was co-owning it with some company? Well, so during the 90s, there was this show called The Next Mutation, which introduced a female turtle. And at this point, Eastman and Laird were kind of fading because they were dealing more with being multimedia moguls than comic creators, which is really all they cared to be doing. Right. Um, I think and so been managing all the finances and stuff of the empire. Yeah. Eastman threw up his arms. He's like, they're doing a girl turtle. You know, I don't want my name on this, whatever. It's not, you know, what we were doing. Um, and so he left. And then Nickelodeon ended up buying a lot of it when Laird kind of was petering out. But Peter was Laird petered. Laird was doing his own run <laughs> for a while. That's the hardest run to find there are a handful of issues that i want to complete Mm -hmm. uh owning in one form or another every ninja turtles comics the only comics i don't have in single issues are a handful of this volume and like the first four issues of the original run both of which go for actually a lot of this fourth volume run the prices are higher than getting like a number two so which volume um, which volume was this volume of this decade? Is that the fourth d- d- volume you're it's, saying? Or? No, this is the fifth, fifth volume. volume. So um, even though Kevin Eastman is very involved, he's kind of a uh, work for hire hired hand. I yeah, I mean it, obviously it's handled a little differently, right? Cuz But it seems like It's weird. The but... creators and IDW decided to take the turtles, you know, fully serious and just really commit to them as so, and their world so this is the ultimate ninja turtles if you will it's taking all the elements of all the mythos all of the mythos of the ninja turtles which is th- at this point because you know some stuff has happened since but like three cartoon series worth um four ninja turtle comic volumes some weird errata and other stuff that they bring in they've pulled references that like if you don't like, if you don't know, it just would be part of the comic, it wouldn't be a big deal. But they've brought in costumes that were, like, 
um, sketches that were kind of passed around among friends that uh, Peter and Laird did that never actually hit the comics, but they've brought in stuff from that or played various versions of the fifth turtle um, in different ways across. It's just really fascinating what they've done with it. And if you know the errata, it pays homage to the whole thing. And if not, like it just reads really well but like that wonder woman thing we were talking about it's a series that builds on itself it's not Mm -hmm. just like any issue you can dive in like i can't imagine coming into that wonder woman run on issue 24 when you got to issue 100 where you have a sense of deep satisfaction was it i mean kind of a climax or uh there's there's a climax to the arc and there's a little more resonance to it but it's really like it's just it's a weird gear up to say like and get ready for the next 100 right. like and i'm i don't know on one hand yeah I'm it was because like, the person writing it is not known as a writer yeah no well sophie campbell's done a lot of her own cell phone stuff and whatnot i'm curious to see how long she heads it because she really is excited about doing this other project that's a creator own project that has some license somewhere but she had to put on hold to do this turtles thing Huh. And so I'm like, her heart's not fully in it, and that that's the part that worries me. Um, that's my, my sense of the part of the turtles that I read is there's a full investment in the turtles. You know, it's not yeah. a temporary job for whoever's doing it and all that. But anyway, it'll be exciting to see if they continue to build off of, I mean, a hundred issue run that's all good. Plus all those side run, all those side minis is that's an incredible achievement for any decade. There's almost never any hundred issue run that's all that's that good. <laughs> Usually someone has twenty good issues or something like that. There's a weird element that came up this decade that I mean has been played with before, it became became much more of a problem this decade is comics numbering. Oh yeah. Um so turtles like the turtles volumes make sense they go up with numbers as they go and when it's a new volume with usually new publishers Mm -hmm. yeah it's a new number one but it should be right um but like with dc i mean obviously the new 52 they actually played it pretty well i can't be too upset with most that there's a few series renumberings throughout there that was odd right i'd say um but marvel marvel's just insane there's no way to keep Hey, you should read Black Widow number one. Well, there's probably been six well, Black Widow number ones in ten years or something. I'm picking right. a relatively obscure character. It gets even worse with less obscure characters. And then there's the uh, the decimal points oh, yeah. and the um... and both companies do zero. Actually, DC did a lot of zero issues, which usually came around issue twelve or something. So that's really mm-hmm. confusing. So I've been on a mission to buy as many Spider-Man comics as I can get a hold of, and Man, like, there's the most of the stuff in the annuals, and that's all well and good. And then you start getting into, like, decimal points and certain variant covers and yada, yada, yada. And, man, is that annoying. <laughs> so would you say, speaking of Spider-Man, that uh, one of the one of the top dogs of the decade was Dan Slott? Well, so that's something that was fascinating. So this is something I wanted to get to. So you did you, did you read like any Spider-Man throughout the decade? Superior Spider-Man, I read. Okay, and I dipped so you, in and out occasionally with some other stuff, but not a whole lot. Yeah, don't do it right now. Um, <laughs> um, 
but Spider-Man through this decade, buck wild. So you have, like, Dan Slott is the Claremont of Spider-Man at this point. When was when they erased his memory? Was that before this decade? Or just before Erased his memory. The, you mean um, or right before Superior? No, when they um, the, got rid of Mary Jane and made the deal with Mephisto. Oh, 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 oh. Yeah, that was that was prior. Okay. So that was during, that was the, the end point of J. Michael Straczynski's run. Uh-huh. Um, other creators were involved, but, well, and right. editorial, famously. <laughs> but yeah, that was last decade. And then that launched into Brand New Day, which had this... Um, Spider-Man was written like a TV show for a while. So there's ABC plots, three books a month, and they were all Amazing Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. That went, and that basically ended right before this decade. And right at the beginning of this decade, 2011, began Dan Slott's official run. Dan Slott was part of that brain trust, and apparently a, a bigger component than even Mark Wade or Joe Kelly or any of the bigger names. Like, he was really the idea machine apparently and then he just took over all of the spider all of spider-man and that's why he was handed the reins they're like okay we're going a new direction it's going to be a little more traditionally not and dan slot boom and dan slot had spider-man up until last year keep in mind he was on that brain trust prior so longest spider-man for a while i think Oh well, and Spider this Spider Man run, like it was multiple issues a month through most of it. Right. So it was usually at least two issues a month. Right. So it was an un like it was a huge output of issues, and so through that we had this initial big time run, which was where uh, Dan Slott started his solo stuff with Roberto Ramos being kind of the principal creator, which was dicey for a lot of people to begin with. A lot of people made fun of Humberto Ramos. Yeah, because his anatomy, it's a much more cartoony look. And if you're not willing to let go of a certain level of photorealism, that's going to be a problem for you. I like... There are points where I feel Humberto Ramos slipped, and by and large, that I like his stuff. Anyways, see, you have big time. Then you have the big shakeup with Superior Spider-Man. And then you have Dan Slott coming back and then pushing through everything. You get to the clone conspiracy. And then it's crazy to think like how much of this like and how my opinion of Spider-Man kind of like came and fell throughout this decade. (laughs) Um, It's crazy. And it was this whole wild ride that was happening with just one character throughout the decade with one principal creator driving everything. Most of the Spider-Man B books were more directly tied to something Dan Slott did than where B-Books were before or have been going since. Um, they were more... Uh, do you find yourself outputs. appreciating what Dan Slott did more as time goes by? Yes. Um, immensely. So I I got really mad, uh, embarrassingly so, when <laughs> Superior Spider-Man started. Because I wasn't, so I think about it and I think like for Spider-Man fans, this was our nightfall. This was some other stupid, but it wasn't just some other character being Spider-Man, which we also had throughout this decade growing with Miles. It was very Um, extreme. I mean, because Spider-Man was supposedly really dead and someone else had taken over his body. And Yeah, well, it was Otto Octavius who took over his body, which was a problem because Otto Octavius is 
is a bad fat man. Right. <laughs> and he was trying um, to be good now, but in a superior right. way. Which just came to a head a couple months ago where they ended this other Superior Spider-Man run, which was... A, who wrote that a one? A whole thing. Um, that was Christos Gage, who helped Dan Slott with Superior Spider-Man. Yeah, Christos uh, Gage seemed to also fade from the scene. I guess he's back now. Hmm. Mm. I haven't heard his name in He's quite always a while. been more B-tier, right. I feel. But I mean, we, we had the whole Superior thing, and that was that was a whole deal that was the biggest thing in comics for a while. And then you come back, and I mean, Dan Slott kept pushing the envelope. He kept doing things with Spider-Man that I keep thinking Buck Wild. And it's funny, now, I've become a major Dan Slott defender, and with people who talk Spider-Man all the time, there's a lot of people who really revile his run. And I don't mean just don't like it, it's not their favorite, whatever. I mean are angry about it. And a lot of these people prop up uh, what Nick Spencer is doing. And I do not like Nick Spencer as a person and as a creator. And so... You spent a lot of time with him. I, I've I'm read joking. a lot of his no, stuff. Because you don't like him as a person. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Well... Somehow well, I picture the two we of you... We talked a little. I picture <laughs> the two of you taking a sauna together and arguing over Spider-Man while trying to hold your oh, towels Oh, we would. On. Yeah, no. He, his... <sighs> He he should not be writing Spider-Man. The okay. reason he's able to is because during Superior, he wrote Superior Foes, which is this great B-book with a lot of the villains of Spider-Man, which is something a lot of people loved, and they should. It's a great book. And that's where Nick Spencer's wheelhouse is, writing shitty people, doing weird things, and mud mun- Right, through. he's good at the the humor of, of dumb, bad people. Yeah. and Which is not what Peter Parker is, of course. And I guess what's divisive about it is... And this doesn't come up as much in comics because there's a lot more like status resetting. There's not as much of a wild shift. But Dan Slott did a lot to put Spider-Man in a very different place from what the standard status quo Mm -hmm. was. Because the character kind of needed to evolve. And keep in mind, Dan Slott's biggest uh, problem was he kind of had to write past... um, one more day still like they'd kind of dodged around it for a while (laughs) but um he needed to introduce more romance he needed to bring some of the soap back to the book yeah and uh, i don't know he was kind of put in a tough position there but he was also doing wild stuff and i don't know um i appreciate it a lot of people don't nick spencer has done everything his power to effectively he's the for what Trump is to Obama, Nick Spencer is to Dan oh Slott, my. if you will. Any decision Dan Slott has made, uh, Nick Spencer has retroactively tried to retrofit away. And does he tweet about it all the time and insult everybody? No. I don't know. He's blocked me. After that time you bothered him in the sauna, he doesn't ever want to talk to you again. Exactly. So, I don't know. We I've droned on about Spider-Man long so, enough, probably. to add to the Dan Slottness of things... Looking back, one of my favorite Marvel comics of the decade was Dan Slott's Silver Surfer with Michael Allred. Mm. And part of it, so one of the things when I look back is, dude, I like the run all the way through because a lot of things I'll love for a while and then they fall apart. But Mm -hmm. the entirety of his Silver Surfer run, which was, I don't know, probably 30 or 35 issues, was just so satisfying. And he created or he and Michael Allred created their just their own version of Silver Surfer 
and it was consistent. And, you know, once I got past it not being like Stan Lee's version, I was just very happy with it. And it, it was just enjoyable throughout. And so I have great uh, admiration for Dan Slott because of that, which does make me feel like I should go back and read more of his other work. Well, and to get back to what we were saying earlier, the I haven't read it or I haven't read all of it, but one of the most frustrating things to me about that run is there's a reboot in the middle of it. There's a renumbering. A Why? Renumbering. It's Why? very confusing because there's no, yeah, just read it, read it in yeah. the trades or whatever. Because it's slot and all red silver surfer run that is X amount of issues yes. and then it finishes. Why is that not one complete volume? That is the Marvel ah. disease of this decade. I mean, they yeah. literally. Uh, and uh, Squirrel Girl, another very good Marvel comic, uh, had the joke, <laughs> only the second reboot this year. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> they got rebooted after like six issues. <laughs> but they aren't and reboots. So they just get renumbered and the story continues and the creative creative people continue. I don't even like the constant rebooting when it's a new creative team, but at least that makes some kind of sense. Yeah, I, I feel like there's some kind of level there that I don't mind. I wouldn't mind more reboots if it was like when it's a new true volume, they're going to go for it. Like I hope uh, with um, Hickman being on X-Men, those books throughout Hickman's run, which is supposed to go for at least the better part of a decade, according to um, uh, current X-Men editor, because uh, the plans are there. And according to the sales right now, it's never going to end. If the right? sales are good, we'll they'll see. stay with the plan. Otherwise, they'll change it. Well, even the, the thing is, though, is like even if sales drop like 20 percent, it's way above where X-Men was before. Right. So right. they got some room to play with. Yeah. Uh, but a, de a lot can happen in a decade, as I'm realizing oh, looking back. I mean, to say you're going to do something for a decade is almost it, idiotic. Yeah, no, it, it doesn't make much Speaking sense. Speaking of idiotic, one of the flops of this decade seemed to be Tom King on Batman for about half of us. And... <laughs> He idiotically, in my opinion, went around saying, I'm doing a hundred issue story. <laughs> and finally, yeah. DC said, no, you're not. You're doing an 85 issue story. <laughs> bye bye. <laughs> well, that was after some. Yeah. Um, now, granted, I'm, I'm being a little mean because the story will somehow continue in a Batman Catwoman book off to the side. Well, yeah, but Tom King. But but you really should not make a hundred issue plan in a business like this. Tom King need to be slapped down. I <laughs> I have no problems there. Right. Uh, he, uh, yeah, man. Well, and so... Oh, they okay. wanted Tom King to be their next Grant Morrison or something, but I don't think it's worked out as well as they'd hoped. He doesn't have the chops for it because he doesn't get it. Mm -hmm. And you've said multiple times that you think Tom King basically hates superheroes. Right. He either hates superheroes or doesn't realize he doesn't understand them or something. And so... This was something I wanted to bring up when you were talking about Squirrel Girl, but I mean, how fan service works uh, with superhero comics really, that phrase really changed for me throughout this decade. Because uh, at the beginning of it, when you said that, I thought cheesecake, basically. Right. And now I think of books maybe a bit more like Squirrel Girl or Harley Quinn, where they're just these books where there's problems, but they're like sitcom problems. Right. And it's and all so, in jokes. Yeah, and it's about, like, these people who are living lives, and things are relatively pretty good, and there's there's been kind of this contingent that's come up, uh, mostly younger, I imagine, about people who want to read about these, you know, famous big characters where things don't go wrong for them. They deserve better, you know, and I want to read about them having a good day. 
Well, that's the something. criticism of Squirrel Girl, but I would say that Squirrel Girl is so self-ironic and jokey about itself, mm-hmm. and it's jokes that kids like my daughter can get and makes them like the Marvel Universe and learn all about Doctor Doom without having to go read what the old white guys are reading. Um, I shouldn't say old white guys, just old guys, because there's plenty of old non-white guys. I'm getting into this bad habit of our society right now, blaming everything on old white guys. But uh, Squirrel Girl gives the young new reader a access to the Marvel Universe in a unique kind of way. So I actually... And I... I understand the criticism, but I also defend Squirrel Girl as kind of a unique and exciting comic book for a certain audience. So how do I say this? So Squirrel Squirrel Girl... How much Squirrel Girl have you read? A lot. It's a great comic. So... Okay, sorry. I misunderstood that. Squirrel... No, no, no. B is based on what I said. I see where you're going. So Squirrel Girl is a great comic, but it introduced this like very different idea of how you do a superhero comic. Where the problem is, I feel is more in like harley quinn or sometimes like a deadpool or some like spinoff like um some weird spinoff comics where i don't know like this idea that you know these characters deserve like a good day and they don't need to deal with problems i've seen it happen with even some of the bigger ones and it's but on the other see the other problem in comics is the endless overwhelming crisis Gotham is about right. to be destroyed. It's Gotham Apocalypse of the Week. And yeah. you know, Batman and his, Batman can't be in touch with his feelings, but he's got to or he can't save the day with his Bat family. There's always these heightened emergencies that are almost overwhelmingly too frequent because they're an easy way for a writer to create tension. Right, but after a while it doesn't really create tension. So you got to um, kill off characters over and over again and well, like, um, and then another way to create tension is to, you know, make them unworthy and have a woman take their place, <laughs> which is another trend of the decade. But there's a few trends of the decade. There was kind of the female replacement. There was the superior thing that went right. through Marvel for a while. There was kind of DC like nixing their big characters to um, try to play up their other characters, right? A bit, which is something that they've done before, but they keep missing the mark with that. It's not that they need to like make Superman go away for a year. It's that they need to write a good question comic. Um, Yeah. The Nazi Captain America really kind of flopped too. (laughs) That was kind of the uh, apotheosis of that trend. Yeah. Well, yeah. And maybe a lot of that was timing and expectations Mm -hmm. And also the way comics are published now where it can take a year or two years for a plot to resolve rather than a few issues. You know, because I mentioned to you uh, one of my first Captain Americas from the 70s was where it it looks like Captain America's, you know, a member of the John Birch Society and the Ku Klux Klan. But it only by the end of the second issue of that run, you find out what's really going on. And that's the resolves the problem. Well, and he's being a spy issue. infiltrating effectively, right? No, no. Where there was a um, a clone of him that went insane. Or not a clone oh, oh, of him, but oh, right. someone else who was given a yeah. faulty super soldier serum from, and from the 50s. And Sorry, yeah. I was thinking of the one where he was a Nazi that uh, Jack Kirby's family did that was done in two issues or whatever. Um, oh, that was where he was pretending, right? Right. To be brainwashed. Yeah. That's another um, one. Yeah. 
So anyway, but the difference in the publishing schedules where it takes so long for a story to re uh, resolve makes people get more upset by these kind of twists. Well, and the way they got out of Secret Empire was just such a cop-out. So I, I feel like that's the bigger... Yeah, I didn't read very much so of it. Like, so like there was an alternate reality bit with the cosmic cube that made it uh, so there's an alternate timeline so there cube. was nazi yes. captain america but then through plot magic they already have the cosmic cube so why they need plot magic was bad writing nick spencer just saying it um so then they have real captain america come in and like punch him out and some like supposed to be cathartic thing at the last minute but there's no build to it it just happens and so they're saying like, oh, well, that Captain America wasn't really a Nazi. It's like, no, Captain America was a Nazi and recognized by the public to be that way forever. And every run of Captain America since has had to contend with this. And they can, it, by the time they come back from this, it's going to be because they're going to be exhausted of trying to deal with it. It is, it is Captain America's one more day. No comic makes me matter um, than this. Well, when I think of the... <laughs> so that was one of the huge kind of flubs because it made a lot of people mad for a lot of different reasons well it was how many friggin issues right <laughs> so part of when i think about our superheroes dying is are they dying because of the way they're currently published with these overly long storylines that then are hastily wrapped up before we plunge into the next event and well you know, is yeah. and, and no one notices that when someone like Tom King writes superheroes that he really doesn't like them and is undermining the whole thing. Well, and keep in mind, when when the worm churned on Tom King, um, which I first saw before anyone else, apparently, um, see, our, see our previous episode talking about Batman, was when the wedding happened and then it didn't happen. Right. Well, that's when I turned on. I, that's when I dropped Batman. Well, that was when a lot of people... And I was already iffy on Batman. I was like, stick. oh, this issue's good. No, this issue's bad. This issue's good. This issue's bad. Well, people are curious about the wedding, but then they pushed into this small event, right? Mm -hmm. There was like all these tie-in books and it went on for half a year or whatever. And, and then it just doesn't happen. Yeah. And the problem isn't that it didn't happen. It's that it just happened because of a whim Catwoman has right. kind of at the last minute, which is kind of built up, but is also kind of like, she's nervous about getting married. Like that's, have you ever seen a sitcom? And some friend plays on her doubts. Yeah. But all of that was in the background. And in the foreground was all these preparations for the wedding, special extra issues leading up to the wedding. And I just, I read a comment by someone who runs a comic book store when this came up uh, in a recent hangout that I was on, um, that his wife decorated his whole comic book store for the wedding and created invitations and things like that for the day of the wedding. And I think comic book stores were encouraged to open earlier at midnight or something mm -hmm. then. Imagine being that comic book store that's created this whole wedding thing. Their, their customers come in, buy the issue, and find out the wedding didn't happen. <laughs> yeah. No, it's... Uh, it's it's not that it didn't happen. It's that it's such a wet thud. It, it didn't happen in a convincing yeah. way either. Kind of the same as you're talking about uh, Nick Spencer's mm -hmm. Captain America coming along. They just ended the wedding in kind of a hasty, unwell thought right. out way. And so these edicts of characters not being able to grow, I feel like that's where superheroes are at their weakest. 
but also they, they make the decision to hype up things before yeah. they actually have a story. And mm -hmm. then they just kind of just fudge some way to, to resolve the story before. And, and by the time they resolve the story, they're already busy hyping the next thing. So it's not like someone had this great story idea and then we're going to hype it. It's Well, that's how a lot of pop culture is working right now. I mean, we've seen it with certain TV shows. We've seen it with Star Wars like it. And that's another big thing. God, that was a big thing with uh, comics a handful of years ago was the big Star Wars push in Marvel. And that just kind right. of slow. It was funny because I remember. It's still there. It's still there. And it's funny. I talked to people and some people, you know, get on it. But I mean, like, there's this big explosion where, like, everyone was getting Star Wars. Yeah. And I don't hear about it anymore. Well, the whole Marvel way is to explode stuff on the scene. Hype it like crazy sell a lot of extra copies or convince the stores to buy a lot of extra copies that they won't sell through variants and things and then drop it in the next year there's something else i mean they well, they exploded with conan in 2019 and already i'm kind of there isn't any good conan left there was a little bit of good conan but i mean conan was everywhere and they're still doing it at the moment. but of Well, I know a lot fame. of people are looking forward to uh, Zub coming on and writing Conan. And so a lot of people are kind of waiting for this more organic refresh. I mean, we'll see how it But there's, there's Conan in the Savage Avengers, which is really a Conan book. There's Conan's Serpent War. There was Savage Sword of Conan, which just ended. Um, Zub did a rather mediocre uh, short story in Savage Sword. So I don't know if Zub's the Conan man to... Well, I think if you're waiting for Zub to come in and save the day, you're screwed. But uh, he's not bad. He's just not. But anyway, that's just typical of Marvel. They just overhype something. They just mm -hmm. want to sell it in the now and not build it up for the future. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know. It, it's hard for me to be too down on Marvel. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that I don't like, but I buy more Marvel than anything. Well, so. you have upped your Spider-Man game more and more and more. Well, and I'm starting to dial back on some of that just because one disappointment too many. I've kind of learned where I can pick my spots or kind of see where mm -hmm. the uh, where the thuds are coming, if you will. Um, so but I also am picking up all the X books, and that's what's really uh, tipping it over. So would you do you feel like the Hickman Hoxpox <laughs> was one of the highlights of the decade, or is it too soon to tell? Well, so. I mean, it's hard to say decade, right? right. Because it's really hard to judge so much... the things at the end of the decade. But for X-Men in the decade, hell yes. Mm -hmm. So um, X-Men is something I loved for a long time. And I kept having to put down because it was, I didn't like it. It was bad or I didn't like it. Take a pick. Yeah. Um, but like the decade started out with Uncanny X Force, Rick Remender, which was one of the highlights of the X universe for a long time. It's still well remembered and talked about. Um, and that was that was kind of the last time. That was right at the beginning of the decade. Yeah, I liked that. And too. there's a, some other stuff around that time that was good. And then X Men was hacked off in a weird way, and that was something that happened throughout this decade for other stuff too, where. Marvel wanted to push the Inhumans more than the X-Men due to movie rights. And so X-Men had weird stuff where they were limited in what they could do. They weren't allowed to create any new mutants, really. Um, 
And they kept, they had the whole inhuman X-Men thing. They made Quicksilver and Silver Witch inhumans instead of mutants. And yeah, all of this kerfuffle and none of it was very good. Right. That might be another flop of the decade. That attempt to replace the X-Men with the inhumans. Yeah. Well, because they weren't trying to like make the inhumans like blow up by like getting good stories and hyping the inhumans organically, which I don't know. The inhumans were never good. I know some people like that early 2000s uh, marvel knights run but i've only liked the um, inhumans as guests in other people's books well because it's it's a weird dynamic that doesn't work i mean the big guy everyone looks to can't talk so you can't really develop him but there's a giant giant cute dog yeah there's the dog there's some lady with hair that doesn't really have much of a personality (laughs) um the only Inhuman people like is Miss Marvel, which was a big win this decade yeah. for a number of reasons. Yeah, Miss Marvel uh, and Willow Wilson on yeah. Ms. Marvel was kind of a another one of Marvel's highlights. But but Willow Wilson doesn't seem to be able to follow up on that success well, very well. She's done Wonder. She hasn't done a lot since. I mean, she's been on Wonder Woman. I think done some other smaller books. She has a book at at Dark Horse, which to me was a big disappointment. I mean, it wasn't terrible, but I was had such high expectations for her. So we'll see. There, she still has plenty of room to grow. So, or may may have room to grow. Well, I also feel like Miss Marvel is going to be the highlight of her career. I mean, right. when you launch a big Marvel character that's going to stick and gets kind of put into the zeitgeist like that, right. like how do you top that? I don't True. know. Um, but I mean, she she had her create her own book stuff before with vertigo and whatnot so yeah I mean, she was respected but not very popular yeah i've heard her talk a few times though she's got and she's still putting out novels still. and things i think comics aren't her her center of her life well so outside of mainstream comics one of my favorites as i look back which is gonna bug you was flintstones oh no i remember that whole thing that was by mark some... russell it was just 12 issues and as time goes by i appreciate it more and more i liked it a lot at the time and it was something that got better as it went along and it ended satisfactorily, didn't continue and become a stale rehash of itself. And so that kind of hooked me on Mark Russell and I've sort of followed him all over the place, but he's had a lot of ups and downs since then. But that really stands out. So I'm going to go back and reread that. The Vision by Tom King, King. who we've been slamming. I do think The Vision is one of the best comics of the second half of the decade. That's I liked fair. it a lot, I... and it, it took me by surprise in a lot of ways. But it, it it now fits into my current theory that Tom King is an anti-superhero writer rather than a superhero writer. But yeah, no, I mean, I think that was a definite run. That's a stronger story. It's, it, it was definitely standout that and uh, Mr. Miracle, you know, kind of. Mr. Um... Miracle didn't feel as perfect as the vision did to me, although I like the art on Mr. Miracle better, perhaps. And we'll see where they go with Adam Strange, because that's supposed to be the next big uh, thing there. Yeah, despite my being down on King in some ways, I am excited to see what he'll do on Adam Strange. I'm curious about Adam Strange myself. I feel like that's where I want him to do stuff. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, and who else is doing anything with Adam Strange? Like, I don't feel there's any seeds to really ruin. Um, And I think the idea he's going for sounds really exciting. True. Um, with the two artists doing kind of two timelines yeah. and uh, perceptions. I, I think it's a strong concept. And even if it doesn't hit everything you want it to, it's going to be a comic worth 
the throw more so than just right. your average whatever. And for me, you know, Mr. Miracle was more difficult because I had all this Mr. Miracle in my head already. And Adam Strange is just kind of an interesting concept, but not something I have an emotional attachment mm -hmm. to. So at the end of the decade, my favorite comic is Ice Cream Man from Image. Okay. And everybody who reads it loves it, but not that many people are reading it. And it's a weird horror anthology that seems to have some kind of through line to it that we're still not quite clear on. So it could belly flop in the next decade. They've only been going, I think, for about two and a half years. Are there, yeah, no. are there other standouts for you? Yeah, um, there's a couple I wanted to mention. Kind of near the top was one run with a character that I generally don't like, um, but made me pursue the character more, which was Rucka's run with Punisher. Ah, um, yeah, a lot of people liked that at the time, and I kind of came in near the end, so I didn't quite get the full effect. Yeah, I think um, the I like the Punisher more when he has to interact with the Marvel Universe, so I like him in... Uh, I mean, I don't like him, but I thought he was an interesting element in um, Civil War, and then, you know immediately after they had him interacting more with the marvel universe where he's more like a dry wit fun guy because the death doesn't hit the same way as opposed to the super grisly stuff they normally play i always with. thought of him as a good foil for daredevil um rather than being interested in his solo work but so in the rucka run if i remember that focused on a woman who wants to become like a female punisher right yeah that's definitely in an element and um the yeah I, and I think that's another thing, too, is the Punisher is good, but you can't just I, I mean, there are comics out there that are just the Punisher comic over and over. But I feel like in order to do something with the Punisher, you need to put another element. But that's also been a big. Excuse me, um, failure of Punisher, though, I think generally when people try to take him supernatural is where that falls apart, <laughs> which has been done a number of times. Frankencastle. Uh, Frankencastle. And before that, in the 90s, they oh, just really? made him like holy punisher or something that was just <laughs> friggin weird pope punisher maybe another big one which is one i know we talked about and a lot of people talk about because when you want to get a pulse on superhero comics a lot of people normally point to daredevil and mark wade's run on daredevil definitely hit uh something throughout this decade yes. of needing to it's not that comics couldn't be serious or darker necessarily, but they needed to lighten up a bit. Yes. Away from it, it truly putting comics in a post-Watchmen right. phase. And a lot of that run was also drawn by Chris Samney, who would be kind of one of my artists of the decade, who I really, you know, was happy whenever he popped up. Yeah. And... Yeah, so that was a that's a great choice actually, which I didn't write down, but I did write down Chris Samney, and I look forward to see what Samney will do next. It'd be great if he teamed up with Mark Wade again, but but whatever he does, I'm I'm excited for that. And another one that was the same year in 2012 was Hawkeye. Ah, yeah, that was that was great, but it it got delayed so much after a while. I need mm -hmm. to go back and reread it because after a while I lost, I think I lost interest before it ended just because it was delayed so much. But. Well, that definitely was a factor. Um, but I mean, a lot of people remember it in particular, the pizza dog issue. But I, I feel like that hit something that this kind of preceded Tom King's push 
into comics that I think kind That's of That's a very good point. The hit that. The extreme alternative take on a superhero. That was kind of that set the tone for if you're going to do an alternative superhero in the in this decade, the teens or whatever we call it. Mm-hmm. Um that perhaps was the model that everyone else was working towards. Yeah, and I feel like it kind of pushed an edge of what a superhero comic could be in a way that felt natural but wasn't as explored um and it was fun yeah even though you know it was kind of making cliff barton into a fool it seemed to kind of work and again it was a great artist company artist writer combination with david aha doing incredible work on that and i've heard interviews with fraction saying for that series they did it the old marvel plot first style so Fraction dialogued it after Aha had finished drawing it. Which seemed to work. Yeah, yeah. So that was fabulous. I should go back. That's another one to go back and reread. Another element I wanted to bring up that happened around 2013, getting back to kind of the multimedia mm-hmm. stuff we were talking about, was I feel like this was the decade where Guardians of the Galaxy kind of hit something, and I don't <laughs> feel like they're going to be as big. Who would have thought? I mean, I remember Guardians of the Galaxy way back when, when it was a terrible little comic they could never get going at Marvel. But then wasn't it, weren't they kind of brought back in the, in the aughts, the 2000 aughts, by uh, Dan Abnett and, the, and Lanning? I, there was a run in with Annihilation. And I think that's what they yeah. based the movie version on, but I'm not sure because I never read that version. Well, it was a different team. Oh, So okay. I don't... Then I'm wrong there. I don't know if you're wrong because there's definitely elements there. Um, but what it was based on, and it's weird because I mean, technically the Bendis comic came out first, but there's no way like that had to be notes from the movie and there had to yeah, be. Yeah, it, it was said there. to be based on the movie or uh, in, they actually released it because there was a movie coming out. But then the Peter Quill in the movie and then the Peter Quill in even the Bendis reimagined comics, right. whatever, are still. Yeah. wildly different characters because i guess bendis only knew who the characters were and not how they were going to be portrayed i'm guessing yeah but I, but the I fact know. that it, that we keep getting <laughs> endless reboot you know endless renumberings but we keep getting the guardians of the galaxy is kind of amazing that something from the movies essentially like harley quinn came from tv where it's really because of the movies that we're still getting those and i've i've been reading some of them and they've usually been good um, not great, but but that is an interesting kind of twist. Um, sorry, I was just clicking through the years and kind of like picking a highlight. Um, but one thing we haven't talked about that it was big in 2016 and carried forward, uh, Valiant rebooting. Ah. Or is it 2015, technically? Um, I didn't realize but... it was in the middle of the decade. I knew they'd reboot. I And I've been sort of on and off on Valiant. Yeah, um, never totally sucked into Valiant, but enjoying individual individual runs here and there. Well, and their whole idea is like it's the Valiant universe. And they make sure they're only publishing so many books so that uh, people can get all the Valiant comics if they're keeping up. And right. uh, that's true. If you want to, you could just it's probably usually just four or five a month. Well, and what a crazy push in. And I mean, they I know they're still going, but I don't know if they're petering out or where it's at. I just don't follow yeah. it. And it's something I keep, it's one of those things I keep meaning like I should get to one day, but right. I don't think I'm ever going to. <laughs> they had a lot of good Exo Man of War runs 
Mm-hmm. And um, and I'm sure other good stuff that I haven't read. They had some very good Matt Kent mm-hmm. um, stories, some of which I don't even know with he made up the characters. Well, and Faith was a big blow up to just do. Um, yeah, and right now I'm reading their Rye just because of, I like the artist on it. But they did. They got bought up by some other like Chinese movie company or something. So you do wonder if it'll keep going or, or where that's at. I right. mean, part of part of what I've seen with, uh, you know, in a sense from indie comics, it was the image decade. But towards the end of the decade, because of the success of image, there's now a ton of smaller publishers, not like Valiant, which is all owned by the company, but a ton of creator owned companies like Ahoy and Vault and Scout and Aftershock, and those are just some of them, all publishing... What about, like, Lionheart or what's Oh, right. There's Lionheart, which I never see in the stores, but I hear about. Yeah. And and Oni's been around a long time and still plays a small role. And, of course, Dark Horse is still out there. But the number of publishers of of creator-owned, creator-generated material has grown a lot. And I think that's to some degree drained things away from image a little bit. Yeah. I hear a lot of people talking about vault comics right now. And some people like me are really into Ahoy. And so it'll be interesting to see if, if many of those companies last for a while. Well, then it's interesting because you guys talk about, but you guys also order in a different way. And I'm much more shelf based. Right. Uh, for my little comic shop in Colorado. And we don't get, like I could order it, but I'd have to know about it ahead of time. Yeah. And I, if I were completely yeah. shelf based, there'd even be image books I would miss. I have to oh, kind certainly. of pre-order these things through my comic book shop <laughs> to make sure I get them. Yeah. So, but those companies are out there, and there's even one called TKO, which tries oh, to just yeah. sell directly and doesn't even go through diamond distributors or anything. Right, and then there was. Um... Oh, the one that did the dollar publishing. Oh, right. They're um, still out there. Um, but I never see them in the shops. And I, it's such a crapshoot, even though they're only a dollar fifty. What, what are they called? Um, Alterna. Yeah, Alterna. But They're I've, still going strong, it seems. I don't know if they're going strong because I know they took a huge hit because they aligned themselves so strongly. They aligned themselves so strongly with Comicsgate. And once Comicsgate uh-huh. kind of dissolved... Uh, so did their presence that i could see i guess maybe that's why i don't see them in the stores but i still see people on youtube who read them who have no comic skate connection they just don't know that yeah. there was a political issue there well i mean i mean and when how... you read their actual comics i don't think you'll see that no 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 and i mean i i know it was like a publisher and then a couple of the creators really pushed and if you're not reading some specific thing it probably wouldn't even be there and how much the creators get to say they're trying to push out a comic how much are they really going to push back? I don't, I don't know. Um, and that's something. I but anyway, that's about. kind of it. Does feel like the decade of of image for the moment's come to a close, and and the market is changing because a lot of people want a piece of that pie that that image had. I think some of these publishers, although they're give a copyright to the creator, may also have a, a piece of the pie in terms of media sales and that kind of thing. So I think there's a lot of investors out there who are investing money in hopes that some media aspect of their investment takes off. I'm guessing. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, I don't understand why they invest in these small publishers. 
<clears throat> and there's more to come. Um, I know there's a company who was the editor who got fired from Marvel. He's now working for another company whose comics haven't been released yet. Um, oh, I don't. The editor in chief at Marvel who got let go. His name will come to me later. But anyway, there's just more. They're bubbling under a lot of small companies that, you know, somebody with people with lots of money are investing in comic book companies. Right. And so, I don't know, how big will that go? How long will that continue? And there's a lot of Hollywood connection there with it being an IP generation machine. Yeah. And that's been a big conversation about the comics themselves. There's a lot of people arguing, you know, I want a comic book comic versus more of a storyboard kind of thing. Right. Um, and that was a big comic throughout this decade, though obviously it started earlier, which was The Walking Dead. Um, well, which... and a lot of indie comics in the aughts were aimed at a movie deal, and that was the big hope for a lot of them. Well, like there I was, think uh... after Saga, there was a lot more, I'm a creator, I have this big idea that I've always wanted to do in comics, and now I'll go do it in Image. You know, with Jonathan mm -hmm. Hickman and Ed Brubaker and Rick Remender and a whole bunch of other people going over to Image. Right. And I mean, where that split happens, I don't know. Yeah. Um, I've definitely heard about Saga being optioned for stuff or whatever, and that's still a big... But it's not thing. written to be a movie. You know what I'm saying? And and neither are yeah. most of the Rick Remender type of books. But those Mark Miller ones are. The Mark Miller ones are, yes. He's a holdover <laughs> from that period where you're writing totally. And it worked out very well for him. I guess uh, in terms of creators that I would highlight that were important to me, but like not one book by them became the book of the decade or anything like is Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips. I've enjoyed almost everything they've done this decade, but most of them have their flaws. You know, I love the fade out until the last issue. I loved um, what was killer be, be killed until the last issue. There's been a lot of good criminal short stories that I have thought were excellent, but it's hard to pick one of them. Mm -hmm. And, Jonathan Hickman did a lot of good indie stuff, most of which I haven't finished reading, though, and some of which isn't finished anyway, like Black Monday Murders. And I don't even know if, uh, what was that one called, Manhattan Projects, ever ended. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. That was his big image one. when That, that was, was his first breakthrough at Image. And then um, what's his current one that just ended this week? So I'm waiting on trades to read that. Um, East of West which a lot of people say oh. is excellent. And I've liked most of Rick Remender's stuff at Image, but none, none of it's risen to the point, like we covered one of them, the um, Tokyo Ghost. None of them have risen to the point that totally dominate. You know what I mean? But lots of good, good fun stuff to read. And most of which I also haven't finished reading. Right. Um... For a while, Brendan Graham seemed like someone who was really getting some cachet and taking off. And I don't know what happened to him. He might have got caught up into some kind of PC politics problems in his. Well, he ran into. I think he kind of ran into the opposite thing, where people are starting to get down on him for his more uh, pornographic work. When a lot of people discovered that he did stuff. Well, a lot of people attacked him for relationships so. he had with other artists or something. Which yeah, there's some know, becomes just a he said, too. she said, or they said yeah. thing. And, but anyway, so it seemed like he was coming on really strong, and then I haven't seen much from him lately. I mean, he's definitely still working, but he uh, he's able to do stuff in kind of a different playground, working more with the kind of underground comics right. doing. 
And there's a lot of the more underground and art comics world that I just haven't kept up with at all. I have only in this year started reading Stan Sakai's Usagi Yojimbo, but I know it goes back (laughs) for 30 years and it seems like this whole decade he's still done really strong work. And Terry Moore did a lot of strong work this decade, although maybe it's gotten weaker in towards the end of the decade. I mean, I've heard mixed accounts. I haven't uh, been following Rachel it as much. Rising seemed very strong still. I mean, I got <sighs> other people liked Motor Girl better than I did. Yeah, I got pretty frustrated him after following him through Echo and then um uh Rachel Rising. Uh-huh. And then like the month after he finished both of those, there's just this big Animbus that was the whole thing for like thirty dollars or whatever, and I was just like, why am I following you issue for issue and the issues themselves feel so ephoral like you really need to read a chunk for it to add up to something and then you just uh, it just frustrated i got i got frustrated with a motor girl because i was looking and it was i was like wait a minute there's only 17 pages of actual comics here for four bucks and it's in black and white so i just waited for the trade but i think I think Terry Moore has lost a lot of cachet in this decade after being one of the uh, darlings of the comic world from the decade prior. Uh, I felt like he was still strong in the earlier part Strangers. of the decade, but I don't know. Uh, because well, he, I, he was. I came to him with Rachel Rising, so that impressed me a lot. Maybe to you right. it was weaker. Well, so, he. I mean, he. I had just finished Strangers, um, which I got in trades. Mm-hmm. I had to wait for the last one. And then it was Echo and then Rachel Rising. And then I think it was around the time Motor Girl happened, some other stuff around him that it just started crumbling, which is only in the last, you know, little bit here. Well, and something you kind of danced around a bit and I think was important was kind of this push of representation with characters Mm -hmm. that really permeated this decade that had stronger and weaker avenues, but it was also attacked with these like. Right. It created a lot of passions positive and negative and there's a lot you could point to but one book that i felt really hit this was um and also got to that that kind of like they deserve a good day kind of issue i was talking about before Mm -hmm. which was iceman ah which Um, i did not read at all but i heard a lot of people complain about yeah and it's a book i've read through a couple times actually because i was reading it around the time it was coming out and there's all this Hubbub, and it this felt is so much Iceman more written by Cinna Grace? Yes. Um, Just double checking because there might have been others. <laughs> no, that's fair. Um, there have been. I don't know if they were this decade. Um, but it, he got two runs because um, there was the initial run and then it got canceled because there's all this hubbub and it didn't sell great. And then it kind of got some pickup in trades partially due to the hubbub. And then it didn't do very good, and it just kind of petered out. Though it was supposed uh-huh. to only be six issues the second time, anyways. And and um, we should say they decided, I think it was Brian Michael Bendis who actually did it, they they decided to mm-hmm. uh, retroactively say that Iceman has been gay all along and just came out recently. Well, so it was the younger... So... Bendis was on X-Men at the it was time. Our time travel thing where they had two versions. Yeah, of the original movie. five were rolling with the uh, regular X-Men at the time. And it was the young Iceman <laughs> that came out as gay that forced the older 
ice man to like reconcile it slowly throughout right. the years um but this which is that's Sheena hard Grace's to wrap run. one's brain around <laughs> yeah well that's part of the reason that there is so the much younger one be more tuned in than the older one the, the younger one who came up from the 60s or something <laughs> yeah it just it, it was weird and uh, as they were pushing for representation a lot of people point out like putting it in this weird kind of superhero politics box is part of part and parcel with it being superhero but also mm-hmm. like maybe not the best um i've heard a lot of different right. takes on it and whatnot but um ultimately sheena grace was handed this he got the he took the younger Iceman and tried to make something of it but a lot of these stories were pretty thin and i don't know at the mm-hmm. time because there's all this commotion it felt like such a bigger thing when i went back and read it i was like oh this is just kind of a i don't know not a lot going on it's really it really it wasn't a great book um and that's part of what made it hard was there's all this push for like the female thor or whatever which was a much better written thing but there's a lot of pushes for diversity with um you know a person of color taking on the mantle or a female or you know lgbtq and then you're pushing these creators along with it that maybe weren't seasoned or there and it led to a number of weaker comics trying to push it and so then it got wrapped up in this whole identity thing and that was something that happened a lot throughout this decade that was a lot of what we uh talked about yeah that's true and i think all of that will fade with time we'll look back and we'll just look at the best stuff and no one will care that there was a a bad Iceman book or whatever. I think one important thing that uh, was, even though it was not to my taste, was probably Bitch Planet by Kelly Sue DeConnick. Oh, and she yeah, that was, was a... kind of a major force in comics. And it's kind of too bad, I think, for her fans and for comics that she's kind of faded away from comics and moved to Hollywood. Well, and I slid off Bitch Planet. I don't even, did that end or I did it just think so, but I don't peter know. out? I just didn't like it enough. Yeah, follow it. But I did see that there was a massive uh, following for it, particularly in trades. And, you know, when we went to a convention that didn't have any lines anywhere, there was big lines to get into the the panels with Kelly Sudaconic Bitch Planet. And so she definitely struck a chord there. And it's kind mm-hmm. of too bad. I, so I kind of think it's too bad that audience may not stick with comics because she went away from comics. But we'll see. Well, she went away from comics and there is no one kind of towing that line in a right. different way elsewhere. I know um, she's good friends well, with uh, Chelsea, Kane, Chelsea Kane. Her good friend tried to get in on that with man eaters, but it didn't really hit, hit, hit the mark. Right. Yeah. Um, so I'm and, sure someone yeah. else will come along and cause there's that audience there that wants a really strong feminist story told in some kind of dynamic fun way but yeah and maybe deconic will come back with i mean she either she or the artist whoever it was that caused them to you know only put out an issue or two a year kind of hurt that momentum there definitely but it was definitely to me kind of a, a thing that happened this decade no it definitely was i'll just kind of rattle off a few others that jumped out at me from the decade one okay. was Shaolin Cowboy by Greg Darrow. I really right, enjoyed that, yeah. particularly the final, the final miniseries, uh, Who Will Stop the Rain. 
and um and i loved the one issue of multiversity with the peacemaker in it by uh grant morrison and frank quietly that really jumps out at me in my memory for some reason and the yeah. unwritten which was earlier in the decade by peter gross wow. and uh, mike carey uh, that was a really that was like one of the last really strong vertigo books i felt and i i thought it was a really unique and cool book which ghost critic used to push all the time mark over in england and i appreciate yeah. I, that's how i discovered it because of him no i uh there was that and then F fables ended this right. decade fables ended this and... decade i i feel guilty <laughs> listing fables cuz i didn't read it all of it <laughs> But I plan to someday. I mean, I have it sitting on a shelf over here, and I want to get to it, but um, that's going to take a... It's a big commitment. ...sort of dedication. Yeah. Um, and there was yeah, a lot I... of spinoff series on that, some of which I read and some of which I didn't. Sixth right. Gun was a very strong indie book from this decade, but I haven't finished reading that either because I just got the final hardback of that. There you go, yeah. And I haven't finished reading Providence by Alan Moore, but I have high hopes for that. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that kind of... That's the hard part about talking about comics within the years because runs take so long right. and whatnot. It, it, and things kind of bleed into each other. And if you trade on them, then you have no urgency of when to read them. Right. There were some unfinished books that if they'd finished out, like Autumn Lands and Sacred Creatures might have been amongst my favorites. Mm. Kaiju Max was a huge favorite of mine, and I know it was kind of a difficult read for you or not difficult but it just came out differently to you when you read it in trade no that's one that i keep thinking about and i should probably just read again more but i that's a strong book i just was unprepared for that but that's another thing too well you and i may have a slightly different sense of humor well we definitely um, do and that's a very particular sense of humor in kaiju Max. Um, that's another thing too is like you know i i've become an older person throughout the decade and i've right. kind of reread some books and gotten completely different takes and opinions and thoughts coming away from them you know on one end of the decade than the other yeah yeah so this is for you the decade for, that you started off in college or just leaving college to you know being yeah. a, a married guy with a kid You're, you've gone through the big changes right yeah um, with the image boom, there's a lot of forgotten kind of mini series that I liked, like, um, witch doctor and, uh, some other stuff that just felt like it was going to be kind of a bigger thing. And then it just kind of petered out or, uh, burn the orphanage, both kind of entries of that kind of came and went. And these are books that are big to me, but just didn't make as big of a splash right. because of the way the comics world is. But that's the kind of stuff I'd like to see take more take more hold well yeah. there were a lot of that reminds me of shutter and lela del oh Duca. yeah there were a lot of women who yeah. are especially artists even more than writers who, who were really good and came into comics but i wonder if some of them are already leaving because i haven't seen much from her as an example um, yeah i know she's been working on some big project i it's i wonder if she's doing art in other fields now to keep up yeah i mean that's part of it is like a lot of people in comics love comics and would like to do more work in the field but you kind of have to keep well. your toes elsewhere yeah. to make ends meet because it's not that comics won't even pay to a point 
it's that it's so hard to get it and it'll last for a while, but then it goes away and it could be years before you get another project unless you're of a certain tier recognized. There's probably a lot of networking involved, which yeah. in my old age, I've realized networking is really hard to do if you aren't the same as everyone else. So it's, and it's still hard to do, but if you're like a slightly overweight guy with a beard in the comics world, you're probably the easiest person to network. If you're a woman or you're Hispanic or whatever, the networking gets more difficult. Well, and part of it too is like once you kind of crack past some of that and you're known as an artist in an area or whatever, um, I mean, as much as comics can pay or do whatever, like it's usually not the best paying. And once you get to a point, like you can probably do better elsewhere to a point where how much do you love comics? Is it really going to be a side project? Because you could your life will just be better taking right. on other projects because it's such a drastic change for, for some, not all uh, it all depends, but another comic that, as I look back, I've enjoyed immensely over the decade that will seem odd to people is Sergio Argonez's Gru. He did a bunch of miniseries like Gru Frey of the gods and then Gru prey of the gods and <laughs> Gru friends and foes. And to me, I don't. I didn't appreciate Gru as much when I was younger, and now I just find it really hilarious, and I just love it. Huh. So, but I worry he hasn't done anything for about two or three years, and so I hope he's still working on something. Stan Sakai said he was um, when we talked to him, but I don't know if he still is. Well, yeah. So no. that's just a very odd personal choice, but it does stand out when I look back at the decade of reading of stuff that delighted me. Well, and that's something too, is like, I feel like there's a certain guard of creators that are used to doing comics in a certain role now that they're more pop culture than counterculture. Mm-hmm. But there's some of these old guards that kind of prop up with their projects every now and again. And it, like, it's a pretty palpable difference between how those comics uh, feel. And I'll be curious to see how they do Usagi, because Usagi's getting a lot more attention now. And I feel like a big part of it is because the issues are in color. Yes, I, that that's made a huge difference for me. Um, I do yeah. like some black and white art, but I never could get into Usagi till it was in color, and now I love it. Um, yeah. So I'll be buying all the color reprints and stuff when they come out, or when they come out in book form. I don't want to buy them in single issues. And I'm wondering if that's going to affect some of the momentum on that because I know a lot of people want to do it, but they'd rather get a trade than buy it issue by issue because right. that's yeah. yeah. It makes sense. Yeah. In the, in the coming decade, comics are going to have to work out this trade versus floppy balance somehow. Well, and I'm kind of curious if there's going to be some revisiting of that. Like, I know that there's a color, there are colored bone trades, but they're relatively hard to find. I'm wondering if something like that would be re released because, like you said, like the kids mark and all that, like, that feels like a slam dunk. Yeah. And it exists. So they just have to just republish it. Yeah. But, well, no, they are recolored. They right. just have to republish the recoloring. Yeah. That's impossible well, to find. Well, in the or, case of Bone, yeah. Well, I think Bone if, is a bit, or was a big seller in the kids' market. I don't know if it still is, but it probably is a perennial, I think. Yeah. Um, so anyway, it's been a fun decade, I think, most of all because of YouTube and meeting people like you, especially you. Oh, so, yeah, of course. Um, I, I hope the next decade keeps being fun this way. You know, I think it's going to be different, but we'll keep we'll keep plugging along. We'll keep being good. Right. Soon we'll see what Dean thinks of the comics. <laughs>
few more years. Yeah, hopefully it works. Dean being son of son of Matt. Oh, I was gonna say son of Agent Forty. Um, okay, well we are not dead. We will continue into the next decade. Uh, we'll go at least the next year. Happy there you New go. Year, everyone. Cheers.